In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Betches Media presents... Betches Moms, with hosts Aileen Drexler and Brittany Levine. Get ready to lock yourself in the bathroom or wherever else you hide from your kids because you'll literally never be alone again. Hello and welcome to the Betches Moms podcast. I'm Aileen. And I'm Brittany. And today we are joined by a friend and a Betches Moms fan, Ashley Gilden Spitzer. Today, she is here to talk about her personal experience with infertility, using a surrogate, and her journey to becoming a mother. Welcome to Betcha's Moms, Ashley. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. We're excited to have you and to hear all about your story. I know it's you've been through a lot. Yes. While through years. Yeah. So <laughs> you and I, I, I've like sort of met you through, I mean, I've known your brother for a really long time. Yes. And, and then like through Betcha's moms and all of this, I feel like we got connected. And as we got to know each other, you, were, you shared your story with me. And I was like this, once you're ready to share yeah. it, which is now, this, so this has been like a year almost. Yeah. Well, we were pregnant at the same time. We were doing yeah, we like were a, a week apart. And we were <laughs> pregnant, right. And I'm just excited that like we're here today and you have a, an amazing story to tell. And um, I think that maybe we can start at the beginning because you shared with me that like you've, you were do, you did many, many cycles of IVF to have your baby babies <laughs> today. So um, can you tell us sort of how, how it all started? Yeah. About a few months after my husband and I got married in 2017, um, one day I just kind of realized that my period didn't come back. I was still on the pill and it was a little strange. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to get off the pill now a little bit earlier than I was originally planning because um, we were thinking about starting to try in January 2018. My period still never came back off the pill. And I had always been regular on the pill, getting it every month. So I waited a few months. The new year started in, in January 2018 and my husband and I were thinking about trying and we realized, you know, don't have a period. I'm not ovulating my own. So we can't try naturally. So I made my first appointment um, with a fertility specialist. And that was the beginning of our very long journey. Um, And basically, they diagnosed me with something called hypothalamic amenorrhea, which is kind of like loss of period, basically when your brain is not talking to your ovaries to ovulate every month. And apparently, it's pretty, it's it's common. I didn't necessarily have the exact signs that a normal person that went through hypothalamic amenorrhea had. But um, they were kind of like, well, if you want to get pregnant, we should, you know, start with some of the, you know, like meds like uh, Clomid um, or Letrozole, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with, that kind of basically causes you to ovulate. So we did that uh, for some time intercourse and um, a preparation for IUI. And I did not, you know, it did not work. We decided to actually move to IVF. Just kind of seemed like it was um, more guarantee of getting pregnant. In that like period, I actually had done an IUI where I 
It's a little bit of a mystery, but I, I did get pregnant. The clinic told me I wasn't pregnant. I actually came in. I had a sack in my uterus uh, and up being a blighted ovum. So that was in um, July of 2018. And that was my, my first, like, I guess, wake up call that like fertility is hard. And uh, this might not be a straight line to having a baby. Sorry, wait, what ended up happening? So I, I did an IUI and uh, they tested me. And when you do an IUI, you know, it's not as much as an exact science of IVF where you know, like, by this day, you should know if you're pregnant or not. And I got right. tested and they told me I wasn't pregnant. And then um, my husband and I went on vacation, came back. I didn't like, I felt off. I tested and I had a second line and I was like, oh my God, I, you know, we're pregnant. Yeah. And I thought I got pregnant on the vacation, went in and I was like, the dates did not make like, I was further along than having gotten pregnant vacation. I got pregnant from that IUI. They just didn't catch it in time. Okay. And I was not on any meds to support the pregnancy. So I had a blighted ovum um, and I had to have a DNC. I, I'm, I'm assuming that anyone who has a hard time with infertility like comes to that realization at some point. How, how did that feel? Like, What was that realization for you and your husband? So I think I realized that, you know, okay, we're going to need to do IVF. I think I was a little intimidated at first by the thought of injecting myself with hormones and, and the time and, uh, the, you know, the commitment that it would take from me. But I still, I guess, had, I like to say, and I don't mean to use the word ignorance because you're not ignorant, but ignorance is bliss at the beginning of someone who goes into IVF because I kind of felt like, okay, I'll do IVF. It, it's going to suck for a few weeks, but everyone I knew who did IVF had success within like the first or second transfer. So I still was kind of like, just, you know, in my mind, like, okay, we're going to do IVF, but then we're going to have a baby. It's fine. You know, I was very, very fortunate that my employer covered multiple retrievals and transfers. Um, so it was not going to be a financial burden to me. And I had access to, you know, really good clinic and, and doctors. And so I felt confident going in. I just was definitely a little bit nervous about how the hormones were going to affect my body. And I'm a, you know, very type A active person and kind of how it was going to impact my my schedule for the next few weeks. So then so then what happened after that? So we, we moved into IVF and I did my first retrieval. I was fortunate to get two normal embryos, but I also quickly learned how much the numbers change from, from a retrieval cycle. So, you know, what started as 15 eggs uh, dwindled down through each stage to only two normal embryos. Um, but I was grateful to have two. I was optimistic. I said, okay, we have two shots. Hopefully, you know, as I had heard, the first or ch second chance worked. So I wasn't really that concerned. I did my first transfer and I had, you know, flat out negative. And it was kind of like, oh, okay, you know, that really sucks. I, you know, was hysterically crying, kind of wasn't sure what to do next. I knew I only had one embryo and I'm the type of person that puts a lot of pressure on myself. It's only one shot. So I, I was kind of like, I don't want to rush into transferring this without knowing if there's something else more that's up. And so I decided to see an immune doctor to run some extra tests to make sure that there was nothing, you know, hidden. I had heard, you know, from a few of my fertility friends that immune was their answer and they had maybe a, a blood clotting disorder or they had high inflammation or things like that. So I kind of wanted to explore every avenue before I transferred my one and only embryo that was left. So I ended up um, seeing a doctor and I also did this test. It's called a receptiva test and it is a biopsy that checks to see if you 
have any sort of markers for endometriosis, which I'm, I'm sure some of you guys are familiar with that, you know, I didn't have the normal signs of endometriosis, which was a painful periods or painful sex, but you could mm-hmm. have silent endometriosis and still have like all that buildup inside and not have the symptoms. So I did the, the, the test and it came back positive, like that I had a high marker. So I was like, okay, well, maybe this is my answer. Like when you're going through fertility, the worst thing that you want to hear is kind of like everything's fine because then you have yeah. no answers. Right. So I was like looking for something to be wrong. So basically the, the course there that was recommended by my doctor was two months of this drug called Depo-Lupron. And it's, it's a shot that lasts for 30 days. So you do a shot one month, let it go by, and then do another. So um, since I only have one embryo, my, I kind of decided, and since retrievals were covered by insurance for me, that before I, you know, went through this course and transferred the next embryo, let me do another retrieval. Like, I knew I wanted more than just one child, and I also knew there was no, cha- no like, guarantee this next transfer was going to work. Yeah. So I, I, I did another retrieval in January of 2019, and this time my doctor changed up my protocol. And I'm sure some people who go through IVF and go through retrievals, you know that especially like for your first one, it's kind of like a a shot in the dark. It's a little bit of test and learn. Like your doctor has to figure out what med protocol works best for your body. Not everyone is on the same doses for the same amount of time. So we changed things up and I had like drastically different results. Um, I ended up getting 24 eggs that time, which dwindled down to 12 embryos being sent for testing, genetic testing, and 10 came back normal. So wow. I went from, yeah. So I went from having like the first one only two normals to the second one having ten normals. That's so now, a lot. From like a lot of people that I speak to, that's probably the most I've ever heard. Yeah, um, it's it's pretty high. I was obviously ecstatic and I was like, yeah. Great, I will never have two or triple again. I have eleven embryos left. I I only want two or three children, like we, I was like, you know, very happy. It had been my first time yeah. being happy in months on this fertility journey. I did those two months of that drug in February, March of 2019. And then in April, um, after basically having done the, the Depo-Lupron, also doing the immune protocol from the immune doctor, which included prednisone, Lovenox for blood thinners, that's a shot in your stomach, a ton of supplements, and also intralipids, which is like a soy and egg infusion, like through an IV over about like two, three hour period. I went into this next transfer being like super hopeful, like I am like doing everything. And I got the call at eight days post transfer, which it's, it's a day early, usually you test at nine, but it was a weekend. And the doctor called me and said, congratulations, you're pregnant. My beta was 65, which is a decent number for that day. And I was so excited. Two days later, I go back in and they call me the dreaded phone call that my number went down. What is a What is a beta? Uh, beta is the HCG. Um, so that's the, that pregnancy hormone. So infertility speak, uh, you know, uh, every clinic's different, but most clinics test you somewhere between nine and 12 or 14 days post-transfer. And you're given a beta. That's your number. The, the higher the number, uh, like, you know, you feel a little bit better. Um, but there are, you know, successful pregnancies with low numbers. You want them to just double every two days. Right. Okay. So they call you and they're saying that the number is going down. Yeah, so that's a bad sign. It was, a, it was mm-hmm. what's called a chemical pregnancy, which is like a very, very early miscarriage before you've even like detected anything in your uterus. 
So, of course, that period was like the most painful period I've ever had. And I was a pretty feeling pretty down. But um, my doctor was, you know, trying to be hopeful and was like, listen, like it implanted this time. Like you got pregnant. You did those two months of Depo-Lupron. Let's capitalize on it and let's go straight into another transfer. And this time I decided to put two embryos in. Fortunately, making normal embryos wasn't my issue. I had, you know, plenty left. So right. um, I went went straight into another transfer. This time, I my immune doctor added something. It's called IVIG. It's a different type of infusion. It's extremely, extremely expensive. Um, most insurances do not cover it. And it's basically... You're, it's, you're infusing like kind of like platelets, I think, and like it's like almost like a blood transfusion, but of kind of like healthy blood that's going to kind of fight off any anything that's going to kind of try to attack a pregnancy. And so it made me feel like absolute crap and it cost like about $5,000 so it, or something like that. It's very expensive. But I did that, um, put two embryos in, uh, nine days later, got the call that uh, completely failed implantation failure, uh, not pregnant. So now this was three transfers, four embryos lost. And I was kind of like, uh, what is going on? Like, you know, this is when I realized that I was not going to be your easy case. And I was not like the, what I called quote, quote unquote, IVF light, (laughs) where you do one transfer and you're pregnant and it's like, IVF's not that bad. You know, this is going to be a little bit more of a journey for me. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So how many retrievals did you do? Three or two? So at that point, that was two so far. <laughs> Overall, oh, through the yeah. end of this story, I get to five. <laughs> but, oh, um, wow. Yeah. Basically, now it was summer 2019. And uh, in the back of my mind, I kind of was like, you know, if I had what they call like a silent endometriosis, apparently the only way to actually like what I did that Depo-Lupron is more like a Band-Aid on the situation, not actually, mm-hmm. you know, seeing if you have endometriosis. Endometriosis could be cause implantation failure, which is basically what I was having. I was having recurrent implantation failure. That's one right. of the diagnoses. So I decided to see a endometriosis, a nook specialist. I ended up seeing a doctor there and he was willing to do an explorative laparoscopic surgery on me to really go in and see if I had silent endometriosis. So I did that um, in summer of 2019, kind of voluntarily. They found stage one, stage two, which is like pretty mild, but it was something. It cleared it. So now I'm feeling, you know, hopeful again that maybe that was causing, you know, all that buildup for an embryo not to implant. Right. At the same time, this summer, my husband and I kind of sat down and we were like, obviously we really want me to get pregnant and carry, but like, we can't keep doing this and keep having all this heartbreak and loss. And like, at the same time around me, like all my friends were getting pregnant, you know, trying one month, like sneezing, getting pregnant. Um, My Mm -hmm. brother and his wife um, got pregnant, you know, back to back. We're having two babies uh, 367 days apart. Um, So I was like, Everywhere I looked, everyone was, you know, getting pregnant and I was feeling pretty down on myself and 
trying to stay positive and kind of the way that I kept would keep feeling positive about this journey was always like having a plan to like move forward and like making sure I wasn't like going into anything with any regret that we weren't like checking something out before I was wasting another embryo. So at that time we decided, you know, we literally all we wanted was a baby. And I was like, I, I don't, all I cared about was that I had a baby that was genetically mine and my husband's, which mm-hmm. fortunately we knew was hopefully not going to be the issue that we had all these embryos to work with. So we decided to sign up with surrogacy agency that summer. Um, we signed a contract, but we specifically told them, listen, you know, we still want to try on, on me and I want to give myself another shot before you start like really putting, giving me a match prospect. Cause once you get a match, you kind of have to decide within like <clears throat> a very short period of time if you want to move forward with them. Right. So we signed up so that we could at least get our profile out there and they could start looking for us. But I said, please don't give me anybody on paper until I give you like the okay. Cause I knew I wanted to try one more transfer that fall transfer number four. So we signed with the agency, which made me feel like a little bit better that we had like another thing going on in the background that if God forbid the next transfer didn't work, I wasn't first starting my surrogacy agency search and sign up process then. So we had the surgery, you know, we, we actually saw a second immune doctor who had gave me a slightly different protocol, and we were prepared to transfer in October of 2019. Again, putting back in only one embryo this time. And now I'd done the surgery. I had, I had, you know, done a different immune protocol. I was also doing gluten-free and dairy-free diet before transfer, and I, I, I was like, okay, you know, fourth time's the charm. We're gonna do this. And I put one embryo in, and I will, you know, I'll never forget. I, it was a it was a Friday, and the doctor called, and again another fail, completely no implantation, and I fell to the floor that day, and I just screamed my head off in my apartment. Someone probably thought like so, something bad was going on next door, and I called the agency immediately that day, and I said, "Find me a match as soon as possible." Like I and my husband and I were like, "I don't know how much longer I can do this." You know, it's now four transfers, uh, three complete failed. Um, five embryos lost um like my my stomach was black and blue and wounded from like all the the lovenox shots i had put on i don't know probably about 10 pounds from like all the stress and the the drugs and you know not working out and just like probably stress eating etc and i just kind of felt like really low and really crappy um Fortunately, our agency found us a match like super duper quickly. And within two weeks, I got like a profile um, uh, via email. And I we, I looked at her and I was like, I had the chills. I was like, oh my God, she was like this adorable woman. She lived in, uh, in the Midwest in Minneapolis. She had three beautiful daughters. Her and her husband had like good educations. She had a good job. She was a dental hygienist. She just looked like a sweet, like, perfect Midwestern girl um, who wanted to be a surrogate. And we we interviewed her and she, you know, she seemed great. They, like we, you know, we did a Zoom with her in the agency and we said, great, you know, we want to move forward. Um, so we had that in our, at, like it was November, 2019. We had that kind of like starting the, the process of surrogacy. Um, what What is that match process like? So um, that's a great question. So we first spoke to the agency and they, they kind of asked you about you and your husband. You know, why are you guys doing uh, surrogacy? What is your lifestyle like? What kind of relationship do you want with a surrogate? Um, do you care where they live? So for us, 
um, surrogacy was not legal in New York State at this point. Only only um, altruistic surrogacy. So New York was one of three states. It was New York, Arizona, and Michigan where surrogacy is not legal. So the only way you could have a surrogate in New York deliver in New York is obviously probably if they were a family friend or a family member who was willing to carry free of charge. So I personally did not care where my surrogate lived. I was kind of prepped that they were like on the East Coast or only a one-hour time difference rather than like California per se. Um, but I, I care more about being the right person than the right location. Um, they also ask, do you want to transfer only one embryo or two embryos? A lot of surrogates do not want to transfer two. Um, obviously, twins are higher risk. Also, if one splits, you could have triplets or quadruplets. Wow. And also, um, another big factor in matching is, like, termination. So we wanted the, the IPs, so IPs intended parents, so that's, like, uh, surrogacy speak is IPs and the gestational carrier or the surrogate and we wanted the IPs to be able to make all termination decisions obviously like up until the point where it was legal in that state to uh, terminate if you needed so if god forbid the baby had any um, life-threatening issues or something that my husband and I did not feel comfortable with we wanted that decision to be left up to us um, so there are a lot of surrogates out there who are no-term surrogates who they refuse to terminate unless their life is in danger um, so we did not want to match with somebody like that. We wanted the decision to be up to us. Um, ultimately, even when you sign a contract and you say that the, the IP has all rights that it's a, it's a surrogate's body. And in the end, they could, you know, refuse to terminate because like, so it's only as, as, right, exactly. But that was important to us. So those were kind of the big, also like just somebody who has a healthy lifestyle, who was like, you know, had a good BMI, who was, um, but that's like also a clinic requirement. So like the, your RE, um, so your IVF clinic will have a list of requirements that they're going to, um, have for surrogates. So a lot of them say, you can't be on any sort of uh, drug, uh, meds or antidepressants or anything for the last six months. Your BMI has to be low a certain range. Age, um, I think the highest a lot of clinics goes up to 42. No government assistance. Um, no more than three C-sections. No more than five or six total births. So there's like a whole slew of requirements. So, and the way that the surrogacy process works is that the agency or a good agency should have a copy of, of a potential surrogate's records, their birth records, to know that like they would a, a doctor would approve them. And then once you um, agree to a match, the records uh, are sent to your clinic, and you you schedule. It's called a one day workup where the surrogate goes to that clinic, and do, the doctor does like a full evaluation on them and looks inside their uterus, make sure there's no scar tissue, they have a good lining, things like that, so that you're not wasting thousands and thousands of dollars on a surrogate who like is probably not going to get pregnant right Right. and using your embryos correct exactly yeah and exactly not wasting precious embryos speaking of costs like you just brought that up is a surrogate very expensive Yes. So um, a lot, that's like the number one question I feel like so many people ask. And it, there's a really wide range in, in costs. So for most people, when, they include, when they're talking about surrogacy and whole, they're also including the IVF costs, like the cost to make those embryos. For us, we had the embryos, and we didn't, fortunately didn't really have to pay much for them. So that wasn't a huge cost factor to us. Our biggest cost factors were the agency. Our agency um, is one of the, like, a higher um, cost. So there's a, a fee to sign up and, like, 
get matched. And then there's a second fee that's broken up into two. Uh, the first one is done, I think, after uh, eight weeks of being pregnant. And the second one is after the second trimester. So that's the agency fee that goes straight to the agency. Then there's obviously the surrogate's compensation. And their fee can vary. Obviously, it's a little bit more if your surrogate is experienced and has done it before and carried via surrogacy versus being a first-timer. But that can range anywhere from $30,000. I've seen up to like $70,000 just for the surrogate. And that's broken down into a lot of different uh, payments. So basically, like people ask like, oh my God, do you lose that like all at once if the surrogate doesn't get pregnant? So the answer is no. They get like a certain amount after you um, have medical clearance then a certain amount after the the transfer and then the, the remainder of that like salary or that cost is divided in months paid out each month after in our contract we made it second confirmation of heartbeat I wanted to protect myself because I knew mm-hmm. I'd seen a lot of stories that you can the surrogate got pregnant you'd have a heartbeat at six weeks and at seven weeks it was gone and so I wanted like in my mind that felt better to have two confirmations of heartbeat before giving the first month's payment, which is like, you know, $5,000 plus. So, um, and then that happens every month through the the pregnancy. And then there's a final payment at the end. So that's a huge, that's a big chunk of your cost. Um, You obviously also have to pay for legal fees for both your, you pay for your lawyer and your surrogate's lawyer. You have two separate lawyers in the state where the surrogate lives. So we got lucky. Our surrogate had surrogacy friendly insurance. So there are certain policies that do not have a stipulation that don't outline that like we will only cover your pregnancy if it's giving birth for your child. So some some um, policies are very surrogacy friendly. So ours was fortunately for our surrogate. So everything once she was released to her OB was covered by her insurance. But before that, when she was at the IVF clinic, we had to pay for all that. So you have to pay for her one day workup, which is like something like I think could be somewhere between two and $3,000. And you have to pay for her transfer, which could be between three and four thousand dollars and all of her meds and all of her appointments so that's another big component there those are kind of the main ones also some you know have like they want a monthly allowance for maternity clothes or for cleaning ladies or god knows what um that's where it can get like a little bit crazy as well but it's like a negotiation with the agency like kind of in the and lawyers so the lawyers are not really much dealing much with the cost, the agency, and like you, you agree to like a, a fee sheet with the agency once they give you that match, and so you know up front, and you can negotiate a little bit there. Ours, I, I honestly, the first, when I when we first did it, I like really was not super educated in knowing what was legit versus not legit, and I think my my surrogate's based compensation for someone who had do, not done it before was extremely high, but I was so also like desperate and excited about having a good match that we kind of right. said, like, you know, that's fine. And so we signed. Um, and so we were super excited. It was, um, you know, November of 2019 that like we had a surrogate lined up at the same time. I actually coincidentally ran out of my fertility insurance with my employer. So I had used it all. And my husband and I were still like, uh, like excited about a surrogate, but also still like nervous. Like, why is this finally going to work now? Like, you know, yeah. we, it was hard. It was, we were hopeful, but we were also super realistic the whole time. Like we were guarded. Right. We would never like let ourselves get too excited about anything. My first fertility doctor that I actually saw who I loved and I became friendly with, my insurance like had changed at work and she didn't accept it. So I had 
I'd like really didn't see her for very long, but I'd still maintain a friendship with her. And I went back to her, uh, spoke to her, and I was like, listen, I don't have fertility coverage anymore. You know, I think like something's going on in my body. Can you check me out? And she was like, you know, I think you might like be starting to like ovulate on your own. Like, it looks like you have some sort of like, you had gotten pregnant in the past from an IUI. Let's like, if you want, let's just try an IUI on you again. You're not doing IVF right now. You don't have... You don't have the coverage. You're focusing on a surrogate, but if you're not ready to give up on yourself, like we could try that. So, December of 2019, literally right before I was going on vacation with my family, I decided I did an IUI on on New Year's Eve. I went to um, a local like lab for blood draw, and they called me and they said I was pregnant, but my lo- my level was very very low. It was 14, and like that's that's like not great. But again, the rise and the doubling over 48 hours is way more important than the the actual number. So my number kept going up every two days, but still was low. It was like way lower Mm. than like a normal level for being like at five weeks pregnant, let's say. And so I went in and my, 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 my doctor confirmed, she's like, you have, you know, there's a very, very small sac in your uterus, but it's really not growing at the level that it needs to. I don't think this is a viable pregnancy. And I was like, you know, honestly, on at this time, I wasn't really surprised. It was a, it was like mm-hmm. a shot in the dark of the IUI. I was kind of like, but why does it keep going up? Like, are you sure it's not just like a late implanter or it's an IUI? Like, can we just monitor this closely? It was at Cornell, and I went across the street to the Cornell Hospital, which has like much higher, better machines to like detect something. So right. I went in, and they do a scan on me, and the, the doctor, the, the guy comes in, and he's like, um... So you have what we call a heteroectopic pregnancy. And I was like, what, what's, what's that? And they're like, well, there's one sac in your uterus and one in your fallopian tube. Oh, my God. What? I, I was like, what? I started obviously starkly crying, freaking out. He's like, you need to go back across the street to your doctor. She wants to talk to you. You have to do a DNC for the, the sac in your uterus. And you need and either uh, lose a fallopian tube or take what's a drug <gasps> called methotrexate, which is like a chemo drug that like basically kills the embryo oh, in your tube. my God. And uh, it gets, trust me, the story gets so much better. Better? <laughs> but Martin Luther King weekend of 2020. I go in, I have, my doctor decides that it makes more sense for me to get rid of my fallopian tube than to do the shots because she says, maybe I have a faulty fallopian tube that's basically like, like basically liquid, like leaking fluid into my uterus. And that could be why like nothing is working in my uterus. Like maybe my fallopian tube is impacting it too. So I do a DNC and I lose my right fallopian tube. I just, I, I have a quick question. Yeah. Did you, so I feel like losing a fallopian tube is like a really big deal. Did you ever think <laughs> to get a second opinion or you didn't have time for that? So it is a big deal, but it's also not. For, you don't need any okay. fallopian tubes to get pregnant via IVF. IVF was like my thing. I wasn't trying naturally. Like I wasn't ovulating really. So like, right. and even if you do try naturally, you only need one tube to get like the the, the right. egg is either going to drop on the right tube or the left tube. So technically, it probably right. rotates every other month. So yes, it felt daunting to lose like a body part, but like also, I like really was like gung ho IVF at this point. Like the thought like of getting pregnant naturally was like even with the IUI, they're putting it in. You don't need fallopian tubes for any of this stuff. So True. like, so I so that was not. Honestly, that was not like a super duper concern of mine at the time. Like, I knew I'd still have one left. Or so like right. I was like, okay. So um I do that 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 surgery and uh, after any sort of ectopic and a DNC, they all they want to monitor you to make sure your levels are dropping. They need to go back to below five, your HCG level, that beta number. 
So I went back a few days later and it had dropped like from like a thousand down to like 150 or something. So I was like, great, that's a good drop. I was feeling good. And my doctor was like, all right, come back in a week. And I don't know, I, I think I have like spidey sense. And I kind of was like, oh, I don't want to wait a week. I'm going to go back in like three, four days to like just make sure my level's going down. And I go back and the doctor calls me like, you need, we need to see you immediately. Your number went back up to 500. And I was like, what? 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 And so I was with my mom, actually, she was in the city. We rush over to the doctor's office. She does a scan on me. She can't see anything, so she sends me back to the hospital. So I go back to the hospital, and they do another scan on me, and the doctor comes in, and he's like, never in my career have I seen this. He's like, you have another ectopic pregnancy in your other tube. What? Yes. So I was pregnant with triplets from an IUI. One in each of my fallopian tubes and one in my uterus. So I was like, well, I guess I am really freaking fertile. Like, but like, oh, my God, like, this is insane. So wait, 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 what were you? What were you feel like? What was the like? What were you, were you at emotionally? Uh, literally like the lowest low of like, are you effing kidding me? Like, why does everything that has to happen in the fertility world happen to me? Wow. Hysterically crying. Didn't know if I should do the lose my other fallopian tube, in which case I have no fallopian tubes, never be able to get pregnant naturally ever, or do this methotrexate shot, which is like a chemo drug, in which case you can't do anything for three months, like no retrieval, no transfer, anything. You have to wait for that drug to come out of your system. Right. My husband and I sat down and we decided we made, we didn't want to lose my fallopian tube, other fallopian tube. We didn't want to have like no chance of getting pregnant naturally. Mm-hmm. So we did the methotrexate shot February of 2020. And of course, there's like 10% of people who the first shot doesn't work and need a second shot. Of course, I was one of them, needed a second oh shot. God. And then I was like, okay, I'm taking a break for myself. <laughs> this is, we're focusing on the surrogate. You know, we, we met her, actually her and her husband, because remember I mentioned that uh, surrogacy was not legal in New York. We couldn't use a New York clinic. Um, and I was at CCRM Boston and the closest CCRM to New York, uh, sorry, I was at CCRM New York and the closest CCRM to New York was CCRM Boston. So I was decided to use that clinic my surrogate and her husband flew to Boston. We drove there. We met them. They were wonderful. She did her one-day workup. Everything looked fantastic. We did legal contracts pretty quickly, and she was ready to start her meds um, in March for a transfer of April 8th, 2020. Of course, what happened in March of 2020? COVID. Right, COVID. So everything got canceled. Halfway through her med preparation, the, the clinic called. They're like, we're shutting down. No transfer in April. So that obviously sucked. But, you know, I was super aggressive, called the clinic like every single day to be like, when are you opening? I moved my, um, basically my my surrogate, I had moved my embryos already to Boston thinking we were doing this transfer in Boston, but no one was flying. It was COVID. Um, Fortunately, there was a CCRM in Minneapolis where she lived also. So I moved my embryos from Boston to Minneapolis because I was like, well, when the clinic opens, like she's not flying. Like I want to and I want to get this this transfer done ASAP. So we were were able to move them to Minneapolis. I as soon as the clinic opened, we were literally the first transfer they did because I was so persistent and crazy about like calling them every single day. I was like, you don't have to wait for a period. She's on the pill. Like just give her the okay. She'll start her (laughs) drugs. So we transferred in, in, in May of 2020. Got the call. Pregnant. Really high number. So excited. Second beta, more than doubled, high number, ecstatic. We have her first ultrasound in like six weeks and change. Um, we put two in for her, we should know it. And we see one 
baby, one heartbeat uh, at six weeks, crying of happiness, so happy. Aww. She did She did bleed that day, actually, like, while she was in the office waiting for her scan. She had, like, a pretty big bleed, which the doctor thought was either, like, the second embryo or she could have something called a SCH, which is a subchorionic hematoma, which is, like, a, like, a patch of like blood in your uterus that a lot of people who are pregnant have. And that's why sometimes you bleed early in your pregnancy, but everything's fine. So they were pretty hopeful. They're like, don't be concerned. We go back a week later at seven weeks and two days and the heartbeat is gone. And I was screamed bloody (gasps) murder in my house and we were devastated. So our surrogate had to have a DNC and she miscarried. Um, So we lost two two more embryos. You know, they were obviously like happy that she had got pregnant. And they said, you know, let's let's try on her again. You know, it it, it could have been like just that bleed was too much for the baby. And it kind of like knocked the baby out. So um, right. We went right into another transfer with her again, put two embryos in in um, September of 2020. Again, she got pregnant, really high number, doubling like a second time. And then um, she bled again at like, but this time a little bit earlier, at like five weeks and change. And so she went in earlier for a scan and they saw two sacs, but they were both like empty, but it was early. So they weren't too concerned. They were like, you know, you know, it's too early to see like a fetal pole or a yolk sac or anything. And we went back the next week and they were still empty. And then the week again, and they were still empty. And so it was a blighted ovum, and it was another, like, early miscarriage. Um, at which point we were like, our, I, I don't even know what to say here. We've now lost four more embryos to our surrogate. And obviously her body is, like, rejecting our embryos or, like, something is right. going on. And, like, we spoke to a few doctors, and there is a chance that, like, basically you and your surrogate could be incompatible. Like, basically her body is, like, rejecting and attacking our embryos. So, yeah. well, I have a question. It, yeah. If you have a specific blood type, is that something that they look for? Because, like, I know if, like, you're RH negative, you need to get a Rogam shot. So if the – do they look at your blood types to make sure? So that's a great question. So it's not your blood type, actually. There is something – there's, like – it's called a cure test, K-I-R. And um, when you see an immune doctor, if you're going through infertility yourself, they do some, like, of these – tests on you and your husband to kind of see like what your uterus type is and then like the you and your husband's makeup because each embryo will take part of you and part of your husband and so for for my uterus and mine and my husband's makeup I was like I was a good match for myself Uh, I still wasn't getting pregnant but like that was not my issue but my surrogate was the opposite we end up testing her this first surrogate and she ended up she was the opposite uterus type of myself so that's why we really thought for some reason her uterus was rejecting my embryos or we had a higher chance of miscarrying using her uterus with mine and my husband's makeup so we told call the agency and we're like our doctor is recommending we find another surrogate we shouldn't try again and give a third shot here because like there's just a high chance that she'll miscarry so we had to unfortunately break up with her which was you know very sad and she understood Mm -hmm. and we still maintain a relationship with her to this day and she's wonderful um but i had to start looking for another surrogate and so this was october of 2020 and we were kind of just like uh, really at another really really low point um and the agency at this point was quoting because of covid that it could take up to like three to six months to find a new surrogate which i was like you know when you're in the thick of fertility 
one month feels like forever. Like, yeah. you know, time is like your worst enemy. Everything is like, you put everything with time. Like by this time of whatever, I hope I'm this. And like, you're like mapping it months, out. Yeah. I was like, I can't. <laughs> and how, how long has it been since like day one? Like how many years? So, um, we start like, like day one was January, 2018. And now it's October, 2020. It's almost three, almost three full years at this point. Three. I joined a ton of Facebook groups for intended parents and like through for surrogates to look for mat their matching groups. Because there's a lot of people out there who are like, I am not giving thirty to fifty thousand dollars to an agency to find me a match. I'm finding a surrogate myself. I'm doing an oh, independent wow. journey. And so there are a lot of groups there where like people will will, will navigate it themselves and you know, a lawyer helps, etc. So I joined these groups um, and I created this like Google survey with the help of a friend who was also doing it independently, or she was really doing it independently. And basically I posted like pictures of me and my husband and like wrote like about us. And I said, we're looking for a surrogate, blah, blah, blah. And anyone who like, it was almost like an ad, but it was literally a Facebook yeah. post. And anyone who responded, I would send them like before I would even want to talk to them. Cause I don't want to waste my time with zooming with somebody who like was not going to be a good fit for me. I'd, I'd send them the survey and have them like ask like where they're from, their name, their age, how many kids they have, if they've ever had a miscarriage. Again, their thoughts on the termination, on vaccines, because like now COVID was a thing and yeah. I knew that was going to be a sticking point. Uh, one embryo versus two embryos, all these things. And I would start weeding out the responses and then setting up Zoom interviews. with. You're a pro people. at this point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the people who thought that, like who I thought could be a good fit. And then I'd also stalk the pages because surrogates would post themselves like, hi, I'm a surrogate. I've done four and like whatever. And I would message them my survey link and be like, I'm interested in chatting. Can you like, do you have a minute to like fill this out? So it was like literally a second time, a second job here. Yeah, that's I was about to say that sounds like it. Yes. So it ends up a girl like all the people that posted to me, like there was a few that like I spoke to that were potential fits, but nobody felt like the right person. Uh, one of the women who posted herself, I messaged her. She um, she filled out the survey. She seemed like amazing. She had done it before. She carried twins via surrogacy and she had two kids of her own. And so I set up a Zoom interview with her. Um, really, really liked her. I actually decided to like, I didn't want, I didn't tell my agency I was doing this right away because I wanted to like, at this point, my husband and I were thought we were going to maybe use two surrogates. We're like, okay, we'll find one surrogate ourselves. And then we'll have our agency find us another surrogate and we'll have two surrogates and hopefully one, if not both, will get pregnant and we will be done with this journey. Yeah. And so I ran, I contacted this company, it's called Art Risk. They're the ones who do um, a background check on the, the insurance to see if it's surrogacy friendly because I like really wanted to have, I want to have to take out an insurance policy on um, a surrogate. And also if you do, you have to do it during open enrollment, which is like, you know, November, December of of the year so and it was that time so I was like shit I kind of need to know like ASAP if if this potential has it or not because then I have to take out a policy for her so I did that she had surrogacy for insurance which is great and so I started the process I asked her I said listen you know you sound wonderful um I really need to make sure that you're the right uterus type for us before I agree (laughs) to work with you will you do this blood test and she said yes so I had my doctor order her the test to do blood at the same time, my husband got a new job, and his new job had unlimited fertility coverage. So wow. I was like, you know, at this point, I had gone through so many embryos. I had four left, but they were like the bottom of the barrel four. And I was convinced that like that batch that I got 10 was cursed because like nothing had worked. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, I kind of want to get 
more embryos, like even though I have these four normal, they were like lower grades, their chance of success were like all like around 40%. So I did another retrieval in October of of that year, I ended up getting three more normals, and they were all really high quality, but I was still in my head, like that psycho type A person, I was like, I need more three is not enough for a surrogate. I was like, not counting the four I already had from like leftover. And so I did another retrieval in December of 2020. I also decided while I was going through the stim meds to see a healer. So my mom's friend raved about this guy who lived in Queens, who was a a healer. He was a a Russian Jewish man who literally worked out of his apartment. And I totally, my husband thought I was absolutely insane, but I like took this bet and I drove to Queens. He's like, please don't die. And like, you know, make it home safe. And I saw this man and he told me, that I was going to be fine and I was going to get pregnant. And I was like, no, no, no. Like, I'm doing a retrieval. I'm focusing on a surrogate. Like, he told me I had to come to him every single day for, like, two weeks. And I was like, listen, like, that's not happening. Like, you are a 40-minute drive from my apartment, but I will try to come as much as possible. So I went to him, like, I think about 10 times. What is he doing to you? So I would stand (laughs) up and he would, like, rub, like, put his arms, like, one in front of my chest and one behind my back, not actually touching me, but like rub energy and then make me. I He's massaging on like, your auras. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I would lay on a, a table, a, like chest down, and he would do something like that. And then I'd go on my back and he would like touch like my like heart and my stomach. And I don't know what it was, but like was very relaxing. And so I was like, honestly, I'm a believer. Like, you know, yeah. I do the retrieval for that December and like literally like uh, I'm a firm believer in the healer. I got 40 eggs that time. What? What? Yeah. yeah. 30 were mature. I had 26 fertilized, ended up with 19 blasts and, um, and eight came back normal. So I got eight more hot, like, and pretty good high quality normal. Holy shit. So now I had 11. Yeah. So now from October and uh, sorry, November, December, I had 11 more normals that like were, you know, really good quality. While I was like doing the healer stuff, preparing for the retrieval, at one night at like two o'clock in the morning, I couldn't sleep and I had this like thought come into my mind since the healer had told me that I could get pregnant. I knew I had those four normals from 2019 that like I was not touching because I was not going to use them for a surrogate. And I kind of thought, what if I put one of those normals back into me? like after my retrieval. So, you know, there's um, something called a fresh transfer, which is when when usually it's, it, you don't test the embryo and you put an embryo back in a few days after your retrieval, like five days after. So it's like, uh, like all in one cycle, like you retrieve, right. you let them grow and then you put one in. I wanted to do a fresh timing, but a frozen transfer with one of those normals from 2019. So after my retrieval, put one of the normals back into me um, and see if it would work. It was a totally different protocol I had never done before. And I knew that my levels and my lining and everything was always much better after retrieval than it was when I was like doing a regular transfer prep. So I asked my doctor if we could do this and he was like, I mean, sure, yes, as long as, like, your levels are okay, you're not over-hyper-stimulated from your retrieval, um, and also as long as you and your husband are not going to, like, be extremely depressed if for some reason this doesn't work, like, you know, like, I want you to be in a good headspace, this is going to be your your sixth transfer, like, you know, everything, Jesus. and I and I was like, no, you know, we have no expectations, we are literally mm-hmm. just trying to do anything possible. So uh, after my retrieval, I put one of those bottom-of-the-barrel four 
back into me. I also saw during this time a third different immune doctor who had put me on a totally different protocol. And I also was doing, again, that gluten-free, dairy-free um, up in, like, for the retrieval. And I was like, I'll do it through the transfer. So I, I did this. It was December of, of 2020. Honestly, like, I had, like, I just felt early on my lower back started hurting. My boobs were really sore. But again, I try not to look into symptoms because I've had them before and it, you know, didn't work. And right. We, were, we planned a trip during the two-week wait um, to go to Charleston. In the morning of my trip, I was like, all right, I'm going to test because I kind of want to know if I'm going to be, like, depressed on this trip or, like, happy or, like, if I'm drinking alcohol or I'm not. Um, and I right. tested at home, and I had a second line. And it was early. And I was like, holy, holy crap. Like, uh, this is a good sign. Anyways, I ended up going for a blood test in Charleston to confirm if I was pregnant at nine days. And the doctor called me, and he was like, congratulations, you are pregnant. And my number was like over like over 150. It was oh a my good God. number. I was like ecstatic. But my husband and I were like, uh, this is too good to be true. Let's not get our hopes up. Like, you know, that same exact day that the one doctor called to tell us that I was pregnant, the other doctor called to say that that blood test from that surrogate came back and she was the right match for us. So we're like, oh my, oh my God. God, this is the best day ever. We have a potential surrogate to use and I'm pregnant and like, Uh, but we're not going to get ahead of ourselves because like we were so guarded and so nervous that pregnancy of me uh, was worked. I was very, very, very nervous about my ability to carry or that I was going to miscarry. And I was like very uh, nervous wreck basically my entire first trimester and my entire pregnancy. So we still decided to move forward with my surrogate and we um, transferred to her in March of 2021. At the time, I did not know what I was carrying yet, so I asked the clinic to put in the opposite gender of what I was carrying into her. Mm -hmm. She got pregnant. We found out I was carrying a girl and she was carrying a boy, and we were due 12 (laughs) weeks apart, um, 12 weeks exactly apart. So I was over the moon, very excited, very, very nervous though. I was considered high risk um, myself because of like all the IVF and the protocol and I also had something called um, low PAP A, which um, was a protein in my placenta that basically was an early indicator of um, that, like I could have a higher chance of preeclampsia or, um, or, or early um, late like labor. Um, so I saw my immune doctor every single week for my entire pregnancy. I was monitored very, very closely. And I was literally held my breath for, for the entire time. Um, fortunately, because I was psycho and like literally wanted all the monitoring possible. Um, and because of that risk factor, I asked for early non-stress tests starting at 33 weeks. Usually they don't, like, if you're a normal pregnancy, they don't start them to, like, 37 or 38 weeks, but they they put the band around your belly, and they just monitor um, the baby for, like, 30 minutes straight, and they want to see, like, acceleration in the heartbeat, and then it go down. So they, like, want to make sure your baby's having the normal, like, movements, not just, like, looking at your baby's heartbeat for, like, one second. So it's over, like, 30 minutes. Um, So my first one was supposed to be was Thursday, July 15th, um, and I was 33 weeks and three days, and I literally, like was supposed to go at the Hamptons that night with my husband for our last weekend out east before like I would stay put in New York City because my doctor didn't want me out of the city starting August and I went by myself 30 minutes later she comes back into the room and she's like I think you want to call your husband and I was like what she's like we're sending you to labor and delivery <gasps> and I was like what, what? And she said your your baby's in distress 
And I literally started hysterically crying, called my husband. He rushed over from work. They basically were, had me on consistent monitoring and, um, they did also what's called a biophysical profile where they like um, do an ultrasound of the baby to check fluid, um, check breathing, heartbeat, and all these things. And you get a score and everything looked fine on the baby except my, my fluid was was a little bit low and had, had dropped kind of drastically. So they're like, okay, we're going to keep you for a little bit more monitoring. And then if everything looks fine, um, we're going to send you home and you're going to come back next week. So I was like, okay. So I really wasn't that worried. All of a sudden, the alarms start going off and... 20 nurses and doctors come rushing into my room that the baby's heartbeat dropped so much that and then they couldn't find it and they had Mm. me turning over running like left right like uh, like it was honestly such a blur my husband um like they end up putting their fingers up me to see if they could feel the baby and it caused me to bleed and my husband just saw blood coming at me and he literally like fell to the floor (gasps) it was it was complete literal shit show they basically put an oxygen mask over my face and started rolling me into the OR. And I was like one second away from an emergency C-section. And then her heartbeat came back on the screen. Oh my God. And my, my OB run, ran in and she called it off because they had given me, while I was there, since I've said all these signs, they gave me my first steroid shot that helped the lungs. If your baby is, if your baby's under, you know, really going to be early, the biggest risk factor is that their lungs are not developed. And because this was so sudden and out of nowhere, I had no signs of like, I wasn't like I went, I went into labor, my water broke or anything like this was like, like really scary. Like my, I was so, so, so lucky. I was in the right place at the right time. Like I was in the hospital for non-stress. Yeah. If I had oh gone God. to the Hamptons, I would have no idea. Like the baby was moving around, but her heart rate kept dropping. Like some, like she was in distress. So they were like, we don't want you to have the baby right the second. We want to give you more time for the steroid shots to go in because you basically need two shots each 24 hours. So you need like 48 hours of steroids for them to work, to help the lungs. And my first shot was at 2 p.m. And this was 4 p.m. So I had two hours. So they send me back. They're like, we're keeping you in the room right next to the OR. You know, we're going to monitor you really, really closely. Instead of waiting 24 hours for your second shot, we're going to wait 12 hours. We're going to give it to you at 2 o'clock in the morning. My OB was like, I'll see you in the morning try to sleep. My husband and I laughed like, okay, like I'm sure we're sleeping. <laughs> you know, they put a catheter in me so that I wouldn't have to go up to go to the bathroom because I like was so nervous. I kept having to pee and then I get up and then the monitor would fall off me. So she's like, it was literally like 5:45 at night. And she's like, I'll see you in the morning. And she left. And like 10 minutes later, I felt like I had to pee. And when you have a catheter in, you shouldn't feel like you have to pee. And I was like, right. something is wrong. Like this doesn't feel right. I called them in and they're like looking at, and the next thing I know, the alarm goes off again and all the doctors are rushing in and they're screaming that they can't find a heartbeat. They make me turn over. I got onto all fours. My ass was up in the air and they're like trying to find everything. They literally rolled me into the OR like that. I just, I'll never forget. I put my head against the pillow and I just literally started praying because they rolled me over onto the bed and they put the, I had already had an um, IV and the like the needle in my arm from like, from giving me fluids. So they were like, they came really close to my ear and they said, Ashley, we're giving you, giving you the baby six sec- 60 seconds. If her heartbeat doesn't come back, we're, we're getting her out. And I just said, okay. And the next thing I knew I was out, I woke up, you know, I guess two hours or so later. And my husband was like, Isabel is here. <laughs> um, and we had my daughter. She was 
four pounds, three ounces at 33 weeks and three days. And I, I mean, first time I saw her was pictures on her, my husband's phone. Um, I was literally like so confused, so out of it, like so nervous. Thankfully, like at least on picture wise, like she looked, she looked healthy. She looked normal. I mean, she was healthy, but her lungs were in very, very not good condition. So she had, um, all in all, a 47-day NICU stay. She was on some sort of respiratory support for a month. She came off all oxygen on her one-month birthday. Um, The story shots, obviously, I only had four hours of them. They were not enough to work for her. But um, fortunately, she was otherwise completely healthy. She just needed more time to, you know, learn how to breathe on her own and learn how to eat. Um, because when your baby's born before like 35, 36 weeks, they don't know how to suck, swallow, and breathe at the same time. So they had to, she had to learn how to eat. Mm-hmm. So she came home literally one day after her due date on August 31st. Um, oh my and my son, thankfully my surrogate had a way less crazy pregnancy. It was pretty uneventful. She did not want to you know, dilate at all. And so we had a plan C-section for him and he was born in Orlando on November 17th. So, um, my, and his name is Xander. And so my kids are, uh, 18 weeks, um, almost to the day apart instead of, instead of 12 weeks, but they're both home and, and healthy. And Izzy is in the fifth percentile for weight. She's like tiny and Xander is in the 97th percentile for weight. (laughs) So they legitimately look like twins. They are the exact same size. Um, in fact, I think Xander finally actually weighs more than Izzy now. Um, but I feel uh, extremely, extremely blessed to have two beautiful, healthy babies home. It, right, it was like right now, I guess it's exactly like, you know, almost four years since we started our journey that we wow. ended up with. I call them my twin blings. So that. Yeah, it was it was literally like I joke that like everything that could possibly happen happened to us and I never thought I'd be like an IVF NICU and surrogacy mom but I am and like I I'm, I'm, I'm proud to call myself that and I think that just like I sometimes I forget to give myself enough credit for all like the the strength and the and the, the craziness that we went through to get here but I think like that hopefully has made me uh, even you know better mom and like I I try to have more patience and honestly like I put I try to put everything in perspective I try to really not mm-hmm. stress about the small things because I'm like what we did for you guys to get here is just like on on another level and honestly those yeah. those those seven weeks in the NICU were some of the those were pretty much like the hardest weeks of mine and my husband's life especially those first right. few days that we'll never forget the I end up staying in the hospital four nights from my C-section. And on like the third, I think the third or the fourth night, we told them, you know, they get your phone number. And I, we, you know, they said, you know, if, if anything, we need your permission for anything, or if there's anything like, urgent, we'll call you. And I woke up to pump at midnight and I had a missed call from them. And my husband had a missed call from them. Oh my God. And we, I literally, my mind went to the absolute worst. I started uncontrollably shaking, crying. My husband called and they basically were calling to tell us that she had moved from like one sort of support to another sort of support, which was like not ideal, but it wasn't like the end of the world. But like after that, we told them like, please do not call us in the middle of the night (laughs) unless it is an absolute emergency because every time we see your phone number, our heart like drops. So that was our first like setting in setting those boundaries. But um, 
you know, I was very lucky. I lived five blocks from, from, from the NICU. So I went every single day, every morning and every afternoon for, you know, almost seven weeks. Um, and, you know, I, 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 when I wasn't the person who got that pretty glamorous shot of laying in the bed holding your baby after you deliver. Um, I didn't even get to, like, hold my child or do skin-to-skin until she was, like, um, over a week old. So that was really hard, too. But in the end, all I cared about was that, you know, she was healthy and that she was going to come home. I, you know, I tried not to put so much yeah. pressure on when, but, like, just right. making sure that she was okay. Wow. What an incredible story. Congratulations on your two beautiful babies. Mm -hmm. That's this is such this story is amazing. I can't. (laughs) I can't. I like you talked about your own strength and like I just I don't know if anyone could go through all of that. I feel like most people would give up halfway. (laughs) Like it's amazing. And like the healer also was like an unexpected (laughs) twist (laughs) because he was right. Yeah, I know. It's it's crazy. And and of course, listen, like uh, there were so many different things that were done for my daughter's pregnancy between the different protocol and different immune doctor and the healer. Of course, there's no and also like we put zero pressure that time. Like I really like like when I got that positive pregnancy test and when the doctor called, I was in a literal state of shock. Like, why would my sixth transfer suddenly work? So who knows what actually, you know, I think the stars just finally aligned and like. And, and, and God was kind of like, all right, we'll throw you a bone here. But yeah, I'm a firm believer in the healer. And throughout my pregnancy, when I got like nervous about things or whatever, I had text him and he'd be like, no worries, all is okay. And I was like, okay, well, if the healer said it's okay, it's okay. I'll never forget one, <laughs> one, one day, one day he like wasn't responding quickly to me or like was being very short. And I like was freaking out. I said to my husband, like, John, something's up. He knows something's bad. And Ashley's like, he's like, Ashley, you cannot, you cannot go like this. He's not the end all be all. The baby is fine. Like the healer does, is not like, he's not ignoring you. Like you're okay. Yeah. So yeah. Wow. Um, we were willing to try literally anything and everything to have a baby that I just was not, I didn't want to give up and I didn't want to stop. Yeah. You did it. You did it. And thank you so much for sharing this story with us and our audience. I'm sure like there are a lot of follow-up questions. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I created through all this um, a Facebook group called Fertility Friends of Friends based off um, – I joined all these mom groups that were all, like, about advice and questions and people in my, you know, social circle where I could follow up and, like, text them or message them and feel comfortable. And I kind of felt like there were all these fertility – all these fertility and IVF groups out there, but a lot of them were just, like, people from all over the world and all of the country and not, like, where – I can get an acupuncturist recommendation or a healer or like mm-hmm. things like that. And so I um, created a group um, and it's been, honestly, it's been amazing. And I'm so happy to like give back and offer advice and hope to those people. And a lot of former IVF moms have joined to also like, you know, help give reassurance um, and give stories of hope and, and success, um, answer questions. So um, if any of your listeners want to join, but it's Fertility Friends of Friends on Facebook. And um, it's kind of just been my way of giving back to the community. I made so many friends and spoke to so many. I was willing to talk to anybody when I was going through it. Now I kind of become that resource to others. And I get probably like at least five messages a week from friends and strangers to ask to talk or ask questions. And I'm always, you know, happy to get on the phone, talk about surrogacy or IVF in general, um, and just give other people that, that like little glimmer of hope that, you know, the journey might be long and winded and, and, and bumpy, but 
there is light at the end of the tunnel. Well, that's amazing. And I hope everybody who's interested should, I hope they join it. And um, where can people, are you like talking to people on Instagram or anything? Where can they follow you or reach you? Yeah, um, my my handle is at Ashley Gilden Spitzer, and um, I I've become pretty open about our journey on on Instagram and on Facebook, just to kind of provide insight. A lot of people, especially, are very curious about surrogacy. They don't know about it. Uh, they have a lot of questions now that it's legal in New York as of last February, um, and also. I think more people are just kind of using that as as a, a another avenue to as a path to parenthood. So uh, mm-hmm. especially if you are, um, you know, a uh, a gay or lesbian couple, and that's maybe your your way that you want to have a baby. Um, so I think that it, it it's great, and um, I'm always happy to talk to people. Well, thank you so much, Ashley, and I'm sure a lot of our followers will be reaching out to you. It's nice too uh, that you created this space for everybody who's going through a similar journey. That's it for this episode of the Betches Moms podcast. And don't forget to rate, review, and to follow us on Apple and Spotify. Please follow Betches Mom on Instagram and follow Aileen at Aileen. And remember, there are no rules on this podcast. I'm not like a regular mom. I'm a cool mom, right, Regina? Please stop talking. The Betches Moms podcast is produced by Sean Kilby and Jorge Morales-Pico. Editing by Stacey Wong. Social media by Brittany Levine. Guest booking by Nicole Pellegrino. Be sure to follow us at Betches Moms on Instagram. And send us your emails to moms at betches.com. Betches.